Years back, the FBI was called in to investigate one of the most truly bizarre kidnappings they had ever seen. One morning, a high-earning top bank executive named John Grunhofer was kidnapped as he arrived to work in Minneapolis. The kidnapper, who introduced himself as Carl, approached John in the parking garage at gunpoint. A gunman ambushing someone in broad daylight? Was this some trained criminal? Hardly. The kidnapper was a clumsy, middle-aged man who brought a how-to-kidnap cheat sheet along with him to reference during the abduction. Carl, as the abductor referred to himself, ordered him into John's Mercedes-Benz, and the two set off for Wisconsin. And from there, the story gets even stranger, if you can imagine it. In the end, the kidnapper ultimately disappeared and was never identified. And all these years later, the case still remains unsolved. Who abducted John Grunhofer that fateful morning, and why? How has the gunman never been identified? In recent years, interestingly enough, there's been speculation that John actually staged his kidnapping himself in order to gain sympathy from the public. Though this theory was never proven, it's just another angle to one of the craziest and most absurd kidnapping cases in U.S. history. I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark. Just a reminder for all of you who have asked, Avery After Dark is now available on YouTube. So you can watch all the episodes and see the photos and videos that go along with the stories and cases. I wanted to give you all that option. You can either watch or listen to the episodes now. Whatever mood you're in, I've got you covered. Make sure you subscribe and follow along wherever you watch or listen to Avery After Dark. And if you enjoy this podcast, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to support the show, you can join the Patreon. Linking that below in the show notes. Thank you for all of your continued support. And now, put on your detective hats. Let's get into today's mystery. Our story begins with John. John Grunhofer was a very wealthy business executive in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was born in L.A., the son of a bartender and a housekeeper. He worked odd jobs through high school and college to help support him and his family. He attended Loyola University on a baseball scholarship and earned a degree in economics. He earned an MBA at the University of Southern California. He began his career in the early 1960s at Union Bank in L.A. and eventually worked his way up to vice chairman and senior executive officer for Wells Fargo. Later, he landed a new gig and moved from his mansion in Newport Beach to the Midwest. In 1989, he was appointed chairman and president of First Bank System in Minneapolis, the second largest bank in all of Minnesota at the time. This hire came after First Bank's losses were undermining their credibility on Wall Street. So he was brought in for one job, to cut costs. And in this role, John quickly cleaned house. Within weeks, he announced big changes and he laid off nearly 2,000 employees, cutting $100 million in annual expenses. Executive perks for employees, including club memberships and other bonuses, were abruptly terminated. To put it simply, John specialized in firing people. He was known to be cutthroat, hard-nosed, and even earned the nickname Jack the Ripper in the press. This led to John becoming quite unpopular. He was highly scrutinized for his business practices. At his hands, tons of people were now jobless, and he was the one to blame in their eyes. And to add insult to injury, it was reported that John had received more than $1.5 million in various forms of compensation from First Bank System within his first year. 
There was a particular news article that reported on John's home, specifically his 3,000 bottle wine cellar. So here we have an executive who was brought in to solve the company's deeply rooted financial problems, making millions and boasting about his luxe wine cellar in the press. Now, this tends to rub people the wrong way. And especially for the employees that John had laid off, it's really salt in the wound for someone who has just been fired to have to read about the person who fired them, raking in millions and living the good life. So coverage of John in the Minneapolis press wasn't the most flattering. Notably, two months before the kidnapping, John's 22-year-old daughter, Karen, a student at the University of California at Berkeley, was injured when a gunman opened fire in a Berkeley hotel bar. She survived, but this really shook up the family and made what transpired next all the more shocking. On November 19, 1990, 51-year-old John drove his Mercedes-Benz to work as usual and arrived at the Pillsbury Center parking garage in downtown Minneapolis at 8.10 a.m. But someone was lying in wait, watching John's every move. After John parked and as he got out of his car, he was approached by a man who called himself Carl. This man, Carl, then began to attempt to kidnap John at gunpoint. But John wasn't going down without a fight, and a struggle ensues between the two. Now, in your mind right now, you may be envisioning Carl as this stealth, slick criminal. I mean, he's abducting a man in broad daylight. But his abductor is not what you would think at all. He was described as a middle-aged, heavy-set, unorganized, and clumsy man. He was wearing a floppy rain hat, a suit, and thick yellow-tinted glasses. The kidnapper was described as 6'2", 250 pounds, with a ruddy complexion. So that criminal mastermind you may have been imagining? Not so much. As John and Carl, the kidnapper, are in the midst of a struggle, nearby in the parking garage, a witness named Jeff Rasmussen, who was getting out of his car, overheard and saw the commotion and felt he needed to intervene. He said he thought someone was being mugged and wanted to help, so he quickly started to sprint over to them. Jeff said he got about halfway to the men when suddenly, and strangely, they both stood back up and began acting like they knew each other. Jeff then slows down to a walk, not sure what he was walking into at this point, and asks the two, what's going on? Is everyone okay? The abductor Carl then showed Jeff that he had a gun and told him to get out of there. And it's sort of strange, Jeff said that he thought this was a joke of some sort. So he went from alarmed to not alarmed to thinking this whole thing was some sort of a skit. Ultimately, Jeff, fearing he would be shot, says he ran off towards the elevator and leaves. At this point, it was 8.13 a.m. and the abductor ordered John into his car and told him to drive them east towards Wisconsin. During the ride, the abductor handcuffed dynamite to John's arm and ordered him to comply with his orders or else. Now, at this exact time, back at the parking garage, a passerby found something interesting lying on the ground. A note, which the FBI believed to be the cheat sheet for the abductor. And the sheet quite literally had a list of everything the kidnapper was supposed to do in the kidnapping. Everything he was going to say to John, how he was going to orchestrate the crime, all on a cheat sheet. Can you believe that? So take a second, can you imagine this? In a kidnapping, an abductor looking down and checking his list. Okay, step three, do as I say. Step four, stay quiet. 
If you're going to commit this kind of crime, one would think a trained criminal could do it on the fly, not have to reference a cheat sheet. This really told authorities that this was not a professional job and this kidnapper was an amateur. Carl was not a trained criminal, but he must have stalked and followed John for who knows how long, learning his schedule, his routine. But he abducted this high-level executive in broad daylight, but needed a cheat sheet in order to commit the crime successfully. So now, John and his abductor are on the road. And if you can believe it, this kidnapping is about to take an even stranger turn. At around 8.45 a.m., John and the gunman had crossed the state line into Wisconsin. They had driven 35 miles from Minneapolis. During their ride, John said that Carl, the abductor, was asking John questions, more personal inquiries, such as who would be in charge at the bank if John were not around, and mentioning other high-ranking executives at the company. This indicated that this kidnapper knew quite a bit about John, his role, and the business. John believed he had done research about his company. John continued the drive, continually asking Carl where they were going, what does he want? At 8.57 a.m., John was ordered to pull into a secluded rest area in St. Croix, now 46 miles from Minneapolis. The gunman finally informed John of what he wanted, $3 million in ransom. From here, John called his secretary and told her of the gunman's demands, reading from a note that the kidnapper had given him, which said, I am a hostage of a group called Parents Against Drugs and said the kidnapper was demanding $3 million in various denominations, even asking for some of the ransom to be paid for in $1,000 bills. Now this is highly unusual, and again suggested to police that this was not a professional kidnapper, because no one is really walking around with $1,000 bills. If you're trying to remain undetected after a kidnapping, you aren't going to go up to your local sandwich shop and pay with a $1,000 bill. Uh -uh. After transcribing the kidnapper's demands, the employees at First Bank began preparing the ransom payout. But around this time, the abductor makes a startling realization that will change the course of the kidnapping. He realized he had lost his cheat sheet. He was rummaging through his briefcase and he couldn't find it anywhere. This is absurd and this is where things get even more bizarre. The gunman is now completely flustered and frustrated, and then orders John to start walking into the woods, down a steep hill into a very remote area. In the process, the kidnapper was supposedly so winded and out of shape, he struggled to make the hike and had to take a break in the process, leaning up against the tree, huffing and puffing. Eventually, he led John to a specific area where a plastic sack was sitting next to a tree. Inside the sack, was a sleeping bag. The gunman then removes the handcuffs and dynamite from John's arm and then binds John's hands loosely with nylon rope. He then forces him into the sleeping bag, tapes John's mouth shut, zips him up in the sleeping bag, and then the kidnapper disappeared into the woods, vanishing out of sight. After about 20 minutes realizing there was no one watching him and Carl was gone, John managed to wiggle himself out of the rope and sleeping bag. He then runs through the woods to a local nearby farm, and at 10.25 a.m., John calls his office from a local farmhouse and lets them know that he's okay and also finds out that the ransom had not been paid. 
It was also found that the abductor had used John's Mercedes to escape, so authorities were on the lookout for the car as well. So, this is the weirdest kidnapping story I have ever heard. Everything about it is strange. The story hit the headlines and immediately made national news. And at first, authorities were fairly vague about the details of the kidnapping. They only stated that the kidnapper threatened to harm John if he escaped during the ordeal and then fled in John's car. John himself appeared at a news conference the day of the kidnapping and told the public, quote, First of all, I'm okay. I have no idea why this took place this morning, but right now I've got a bank to run, and that's what I intend to do, end quote. John's daughter Karen, the one who had just survived the incident at her school in Berkeley, told the press that her dad was, quote, obviously just very relieved and trying to relax. We both can't believe what's happened to us. These two situations are almost like TV movies come true, end quote. Indeed. John's Mercedes-Benz was found by authorities in downtown Minneapolis days later. Now, the first thought by those at the bank and investigators was, this had to be the work of a disgruntled employee who wanted to get revenge on First Bank System and John. This must be connected to the recent firings and uproar. John did not have a shining reputation in the press, and this kidnapping could have been retaliation. The FBI did say this kidnapping was precisely timed and believed the abductor was watching John and knew his exact movements and routine. It didn't happen by chance. So the FBI is brought in and opened up a hotline for tips. Agents also work with John to create a composite sketch of the abductor, Carl, and release the composite sketch to the public. Unsure if Carl was an alias or possibly connected to the real kidnapper's name in some way. But the sketch left many surprised. So many thought it would possibly resemble a past employee of First Bank, and this would be an open and shut case. But it wasn't. Surprisingly, the sketch didn't resemble anyone who worked or works at the company. But investigators did get a hit. A man by the name of John Henderson was identified by two different callers as the kidnapper after they saw the composite sketch in the news. Now, John Henderson and the composite sketch of the kidnapper did bear a striking resemblance. This was looking like a real solid lead. Maybe police had found their man. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. The FBI began looking into John Henderson. After all, he was ID'd by two separate callers and had a striking resemblance to the sketch of the kidnapper. But the FBI found that John Henderson had no connection to John, John's family, or First Bank in any way, shape, or form. He had never worked there, nor did he have any family or friends who work at the company. John Henderson had no affiliation to John Grunhofer at all. John Henderson was a maintenance worker who lived 25 miles outside of Minneapolis, and when FBI showed up at his door, he was stunned. When investigators began interviewing him about the recent kidnapping, John Henderson denied any involvement and was completely transparent. He said he had nothing to do with it and even encouraged officers to search his apartment. As he said, he knew they wouldn't find anything because he was not involved. He said he had nothing to hide. Investigators searched his car, his house, his garage, and found nothing in regards to physical evidence that linked him to the abduction. But authorities weren't stopping there. Police organized a lineup at the station and requested that John Henderson participate. And at the lineup, police had John Grunhofer watching, and he confidently pointed and ID'd John Henderson as his kidnapper. 
He said, that's him. That's a man who kidnapped me at gunpoint. That's Carl. John Henderson continued to deny any involvement and said, I did not do this. Even though he claims I was the kidnapper, I did not do it. And by all accounts, from watching John Henderson's interviews, he did not seem to be connected to the case in any way. He seemed like an innocent man who was completely taken by surprise by this whole ordeal and these accusations. Although John Grunhofer ID'd John Henderson as his abductor, police wanted to speak with someone else, someone who also saw the kidnapper, that witness from the parking garage, Jeff Rasmussen. And when they showed Jeff the lineup of suspects, he did not pick John Henderson out of the lineup. But the FBI continued on their course of the investigation and next took a handwriting sample from John Henderson. This was compared with the cheat sheet note found in the parking garage that the kidnapper accidentally dropped in the midst of the abduction. And investigators found it was not a match. John Henderson's handwriting did not match the kidnapper's note. But police still felt there was something there as John Henderson didn't have an airtight alibi in their eyes. Henderson was subjected to a grand jury investigation, but in the end, no charges were ever filed and no evidence linking John Henderson to the kidnapping was ever found. A $100,000 reward was being offered in the case, but there were really no other solid leads really. No one else came forward and eventually John Henderson was officially cleared as a suspect. John Grunhofer seemed to move on quite well from the entire ordeal. He went on to have a very successful career. In 1997, he oversaw the $9 billion accusation of then Portland, Oregon-based U.S. Bank Corp to become the nation's 14th largest bank. Towards the end of his career, he sold U.S. Bank Corp in 2001 for $22 billion. John retired in 2002, but today U.S. Bank is one of the top largest banks in the country. But aside from this, in more recent years, there's been speculation that John himself actually staged this entire bizarre kidnapping in order to gain sympathy from the public. Because of his sinking popularity after his mass firings at First Bank, some theorize that he planned the kidnapping to change his public image, from villainized businessman to sympathetic victim. And the entire thing was a giant hoax. Those who believe this theory believe this is why he was so absurd, bungled, and unbelievable from the start, and also why the actual kidnapper was never found and charged. But for this theory to be plausible, there would have to be an accomplice as that witness saw John and the unidentified man in the parking garage that morning. And to be clear, this theory was never confirmed and John passed away on January 24th, 2021 at the age of 82. But speculations have been made for countless reasons. One, many find the entire kidnapping ordeal to seem very fishy. Let's go down the list, or cheat sheet, if you will, of some of the major questions from this case that people have. Firstly, many ask, how could John, who was up close and personal with this kidnapper for hours, so confidently falsely identify John Henderson as his kidnapper in the lineup? This is strange, an FBI later cleared John Henderson saying there was absolutely no evidence that linked him to this case. But John Grunhofer told investigators that he was the one who kidnapped him. So, a big question mark there. Secondly, the kidnapping itself was so unbelievably bungled and amateurish, it's hard to even know what the motive was for the kidnapping. 
Remember the kidnapper Carl said that he was from the Parents Against Drugs group? What? Oh yeah, because those Parents Against Drugs are really known to be a wild and crazy group. And this kidnapper goes to all this work to stalk John, then kidnap him, drive to another state, demand ransom. This is a lot. All for him to realize that he lost his cheat sheet? He then becomes so flustered that he essentially gives up? Sloppily ties up John, leaves him in the woods, and is never heard from again? He does all of this without getting any of the ransom money. He just said, well, forget it. The entire kidnapping from start to finish was so absurd, it was like out of a slapstick comedy routine. The next big question that many have is in this case, how were the police never able to identify the real kidnapper? This was a high-profile case in the Midwest at the time, and the story even aired on Unsolved Mysteries. The case and the kidnapper was on display for the world to see. And John Grunhofer was a very prominent, wealthy, and successful businessman at the forefront of multi-billion dollar deals. Yet, the case was never solved and no one was ever charged? Curious. Many others point to the fact that the only witness to the entire thing besides John was the witness in the parking garage, Jeff Rasmussen. He told investigators he heard and spotted a scuffle, and when he approached, John and the kidnapper, quote, looked like they knew each other, end quote, and initially thought the entire thing was a joke or something. During the rest of the kidnapping through Wisconsin, the secluded rest stop, there were no other witnesses. Those who believe John orchestrated his own kidnapping believe he did it for sympathy and most importantly, good publicity. As we discussed, John, nicknamed Jack the Ripper, had been getting a lot of backlash in the press for cutting thousands of jobs. He was villainized by the public. So is it possible he wanted to flip the narrative? On the other side of the fence, many others say this was a man who just lived through a horribly tragic event with his daughter Karen, being involved in the incident at Berkeley just mere months before this. To imagine that he would have set up this kind of hoax is unbelievable. So the public opinion is quite divided on the case. There are really two camps. But what do you think? Was this just the strangest, sloppiest, most bizarre bungled kidnapping in history? And the kidnapper Carl just happened to get away with it? Or do you believe there's more to the story? It seems like everyone has a different theory or opinion about what may have happened that morning, and I myself have quite a few mixed feelings about it all. What are your thoughts on the case? What does your inner detective tell you? Let me know in the comments. I always love to hear your thoughts on these cases. Until next episode, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.